I love watching those. Those are so good. Can we thank the Hume team for putting those together once more? Can we just celebrate all those who use their art to create that? I want to tell you a quick story. When I was a sophomore, I'd spent one year at a Christian high school, so I feel like I can, I can relate. Uh, where are my sophomores at, by the way? Uh, yep. All right. You guys got a little more love today. That's good. So I was a sophomore at this school, and it was my sophomore year that I got really tall really fast. And so in my mind, I was short little Robert, but my body was really tall. And the way I learned this is after PE, we had this hallway, and at the end of the hallway was the the men's locker room. And I remember looking down this hallway going, I could walk down that hallway like a normal high schooler. Open the door, go in, get changed, go to lunch, or I could run full steam down this hallway, and I can jump kick open that door and go flying in like a ninja. So where are my sophomores at? Guys, what would you do? Walk. You guys are all reasonable. I was not as reasonable as you. I decided I'm running, and I'm jumping into this thing. And so I get going, and I am like full head of steam, and I fly through the air, and I feel like I was in the air for forever. And then, boom, everything goes dark. And people who were inside the locker room, all they saw was the door suddenly go whoosh and then slam shut and nothing else happened. And they're like, what? And what I didn't realize is since I had gotten tall, when I jumped, I jumped high enough, I caught my forehead on the metal and concrete above the door and knocked myself unconscious. And so my body was just laying outside of the door. My feet did manage to hit the door as I was flying through, and then it just knocked me back. I ended up throwing up and going home. It was a big deal. Okay, here's what I want for you guys today. I want you to have, so after I went to the doctor and all that, I went, I think I'm tall. And that's how I realized I was tall. So here's what I want for you. I want you to have one of these, bam, just knocked in the face moments where you wake up and you go, oh, wow. Oh, wow. The Bible, this thing that like, I don't know, how many of you have a Bible with you right now? Like hold it up if you have a Bible, like in your hand. How many, it's a phone, how many, it's an actual Bible? Okay. We get so used to some things, they're so familiar, they almost become unfamiliar. Like we don't realize, because I actually have tons of these. I have different ones. I have an archaeological study one. I have like my study Bible. I have ones from when I was younger that I had written in and all of that. And I have ones on my phone and I have every translation on my phone. And I'm surrounded by it. But but what is this thing that we carry around and maybe take for for granted a little bit? Remember this, this little world that we created? Chicken keeps falling over, man. Forget it. He's dead. Okay. We asked the question, how could these people possibly know me as I made this little world or know us? Uh, What if if somehow inside of the creation there was a reflection of my creativity? We talked about that last night. But what if somehow I could deliver a message into this world about this world and about why and how this world came into existence? What if I could deliver a message that revealed things about me, revealed things about them and why I created them? And what if somehow I could put a stamp on that? Because other people in this world, they might say, oh, I have the answers, and they might write something down. So how can they know that what I've given them is actually from me and not from them? 
if I could just somehow deliver a message to them. This book, the Bible, is unique. It's unlike any other book that's ever been written in the history of mankind. In fact, it's a collection of 66 different books written over the span, think about this for a moment, over the span of 1,500 to 1,600 years by over 40 authors across three continents in three different languages. That's pretty incredible by itself. You will not find another book like that. And I want to I show you this. I have a, an image. Can we put this up here? This is a visualization of your Bible. Anytime you open up your Bible, if you have one of your Bibles, open it up. And you might notice on the bottom, there's like little tiny numbers and words. These are called cross-references. You guys ever seen those in your Bible? So this is a visualization of every cross-reference in your Bible. So again, if, I'm going to just explain this real quick. Across the bottom, each one of those little lines, that's a chapter of the Bible. And when you see a slight color change, that's a new book of the Bible. And then the arches are if there's a reference. So in Genesis 1... If there's a reference to the very end of Revelation, that's that big arch that you see going across the top. And those are all the different connections throughout the Bible. Every cross-reference visualized. And the further apart they are, they come in a different color, and so that's why it looks so beautiful. But this book is unlike any other book that's ever been written. Now imagine for a moment, let's leave this up here. You decide, I got an idea. I want to start a new religion. We're going to call it Bakersfieldanity. And we're going to start this book, and we're going to start writing this book, and we're just going to keep passing it along, and now other people are going to start writing. And, and in like 2,000 years, we're going to bring them all together, and it's all going to be connected. Would that ever happen? No. The only way that this happens is if there is a divine author behind this. The Bible teaches that it is actually God breathed. In Genesis, God creates Adam, and he breathes breath into him and he becomes a living soul. The Bible is God breathed that yes, men and women have written and they, they have given us the words that we have, but it was the Holy Spirit who moved them to write, who moved them to speak and for people to record what they were saying and write down their testimonies. It was the Holy Spirit who was putting this together and putting this divine stamp on it so that we would know there's no way anybody can just come up with this on their own. Nobody could just make this up, this has God's divine fingerprints all over it. It's the first hyperlinked text that's ever existed. The Bible is unique. It's different. I want to tell you guys a story of some rebellious teenagers. Because what's happened throughout history is some people have said, well, maybe what we have was, was altered. Maybe it was changed. Maybe what the Old Testament says, people had, had doctored it up to make it look like everything was fulfilled in Jesus because the Bible's full of prophecy. The Old Testament, if I could sum up the Old Testament, I think this is where I said Genesis was. Genesis to Malachi, and we go, okay, this is the Old Testament. This is the New Testament. This is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the way to Revelation. The Old Testament, if I had to sum it up, it would be this. A Savior's coming. We need a Savior. We've fallen. Sin has ruined everything. A Savior is coming. God's going to give us law. He's going to preserve a people. But listen, we can't keep the law on our own. But good, look, a Savior is coming. And we're going to try, and, and we're going to fail, and we're going to call out to God, and he's going to restore us. But then we're going to become prideful, and we're going to just say, oh, I'm going to worship these other gods, and we're going to fail again. We'll cry out. God will restore us. But by the way, we definitely need a Savior. And a Savior is coming. 
And all throughout the Old Testament, there's these whispers, a Savior is coming, a Savior is coming, the Messiah, the Christ. And you get to the New Testament. And if I could sum up all of the New Testament, it would be this, a Savior has come, his name is Jesus. Jesus is the thread that holds all of the Bible together, that every verse, ultimately, it's about this Savior that God is sending And so critics would go, you know what, that stuff in the Old Testament about a Savior coming, uh, we think it was maybe changed, it was altered, or it was just made up, or some of them, they were just made up stories. In recent years, again, when I say recent years, I'm talking in the span of history, so like the last hundred years, there's been three major discoveries in biblical archaeology. And not a single of these discoveries, by the way, have pointed us away from the validity of scripture, but it's actually pointed us to everything that God has given us in here is actually truth. It's real. And it's not just, wow, that's good information. The answers to life's biggest questions, why we are here, who we are, they are answered in the pages of these scriptures. And so if scripture is actually true, if it can be trusted, if it is reliable, this is a game changer. It changes everything. It's a game changer. Elbow the person next to you. Say, this is a game changer. Oh, yeah. Okay. Some of you did that a little too hard, but okay. Recently, three rebellious teens. One was a Bedouin shepherd in 1957. He lost a goat near the Dead Sea. And he thought his goat might be in this cave, and so the Bedouin shepherd did what any of us 13, 14, 15-year-olds would do. We'd he picked up a rock and he started chucking rocks into caves. And he figured he'd either scare the goat out or he'd hear the sound of a rock hitting the side of a goat and it'd go, ah, you know, and he'd find it that way. And so he's chucking rocks and he hears not a goat, he hears pottery shatter. So what do you do when you find a dark cave and you don't know what's in there and there's something mysterious? You go and you find an adult and you bring him to it. No, you go explore that thing, right? So he goes and he climbs up in there and he finds this pottery. And in this pottery, there's these old manuscripts. And it would turn out that there were, there were actually many other caves that had the same pottery with these ancient manuscripts and sheepskin. And he discovered this and he's like, wow, that's cool. And then started selling it. And then somebody came across it and went, where, where did you get this? And it turns out this rebellious teenager made one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of our time and what's known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because critics, after, after you have you know, Jesus and the resurrection and the church is born, and then you have Christianity on the rise all over, and you have people going, look, all of this stuff that happened in the life of Jesus, it was all prophesied in the Old Testament. And people said, no, 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 what we have in the Old Testament, it was altered to fit the life of Jesus. Well, these Dead Sea Scrolls predated the life of Jesus. And what we found is 37 of the 39 books of the Old Testament in these ancient manuscripts. And we were able to compare what was written sometimes as far as 26 centuries ago, so 2,600 years ago when some of these were written, to what we have today when we open up our Bible, we can look at what we have now and what they had then because they're like, oh, it's like the telephone game, right? Once it gets translated to this person, to this person, it gets altered, it's not reliable. Here's what we found, word for word. What existed here is what we have today. That God has gone to great lengths to preserve his word. There's a 15-year-old ditching school in 1880. His name's Jacob Spafford. 
Fun fact, he was adopted by Horatio Spafford. He wrote the song, It Is Well With My Soul. It's this old hymn. And he settled his new family in Israel. And his son was ditching school one day. And he was climbing around in this cave by the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem. And he found this inscription. And he went and told his professor, hey, sorry, I was ditching class, but I found this thing. It's kind of cool. So the professor went, turns out, it's some of the oldest writing we have of the ancient Hebrew writing. And it's the story of Hezekiah from 770 BC when he completed a tunnel to keep, to keep Jerusalem from being sieged. And it's written about in history, and they went, yeah, that was just a story, and you know, that, that was way back then and probably made up. And they actually found the tunnel, and they found the inscription, and went, wow, the Bible's legit. You can actually go hike through that tunnel today in Jerusalem. 1979, there was an archaeologist, and he couldn't get enough funding to bring in other archaeologists. He was cleaning out these tombs and looking for artifacts just outside of the walls of Jerusalem. And so the... The community's like, hey, we have this like archaeology club of 12 and 13-year-olds. They'll help you out. And so this guy who's like, one day he would eventually become a doctor and very successful in his field. He says, okay, I'll, I'll take him. And there's this one really annoying boy named Nathan. And Nathan was super obnoxious. Do I have a Nathan in the room? Sorry, Nathan. I'm not talking about you. Nathan, you're the best. Where you at? Yeah. You look like a great guy. Okay, not that Nathan. This Nathan was super obnoxious. And so here's what the archaeologist says. He goes, hey, Nathan, I got a job for you. I want you to go over here to tomb number 25. And it was just an empty, like there was nothing in there. It was just stone, absolutely nothing he could mess up. And he says, I want you to scrub it clean. So clean you could eat off of it. And he knew this would keep Nathan occupied pretty much for the entire day. And he went back over to do his important archaeological stuff. So Nathan goes over there. And what the archaeologist didn't know is Nathan snuck a little hammer in his pocket. And Nathan went into this place and started chiseling rock. It's a big no-no in archaeology, by the way, to just sneak your own hammer into a place and start breaking things. But Nathan doesn't care about that. He starts breaking it, and he finds this hidden little compartment, and he starts pulling stuff out. And he brings it to the archaeologist like, look, I found some things. I, too, am an archaeologist. And this guy's like, where did you get that? And they went and they found this chamber. And what was in this chamber predated the exile of Israel under Nebuchadnezzar. So this is called pre-exilic Israel. So this goes all the way back to like beyond 600 BC. And they found these little scrolls. The oldest known scrolls we have of the Old Testament. And they were, they were printed into silver. They were etched into silver. And it's the ironic blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. Lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. That was in these scrolls. And so what we had dating all the way back is exactly what we have today. The Bible is reliable. God has gone to great lengths to keep it preserved. And why would God use three rebellious teens to make three of the greatest archaeological discoveries of our time? 1 Corinthians 1, 27 says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and despised things, and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. God kept perfectly preserved for 2,000 years, almost the entire Old Testament, sitting in a cave, untouched, empires rose and fell, until a Bedouin threw a rock finding a sheep. 
God's doing something amazing. One other quick archaeological study. There was this professor, and he was leading tours, and, and critics of the Bible said, hey, what we thought was Sodom is not actually Sodom. And they said this site, you know, that it doesn't date properly of, of when there was pottery, and they're looking at all that going, yeah, it's not the right site. And so this guy's reading his Bible, and he's like, I think we're looking in the wrong place. And so in the early 2000s, he started excavating the site that, that matched the biblical record, and he used the Bible as a guide and started digging. And one of the people who were digging, they're like, hey, there's all of this ash down here. And if you don't know the story of Sodom, this is the city that was destroyed by fire from heaven. It's kind of this crazy story. It's like, could that actually happen? Is this real or is this just like a made-up Bible story? And she's digging down and she finds ash and she says, you can smell sulfur. And they dig down and what they found is, as you dig down in these sites, by the way, you're going back in time because they would just build cities on top of cities. So the further down you dig, the further back in time you go. And there was this weird period of like 700 years where this city was unoccupied. So it was made so desolate, nobody wanted to live there for 700 years. But it was in a prime location. And then as they're digging, they find this piece of pottery and they flip it over and it's green on one side. And the guy who's an expert in pottery, he's like, well, they didn't have the technology back then to make this kind of pottery. And he, he's trying to figure it out. And then he shows it to somebody and they go, oh, that's Trinitite. How many of you saw Oppenheimer? Okay. In Oppenheimer, they detonate a nuclear weapon in the desert. And that explosion, sorry, spoiler alert if you haven't seen the movie. It's kind of on the cover. Okay. Uh, they, de they detonate and the heat is so intense it melts the sand into glass and it forms its own material called Trinitite. It's named after Trinity. That was the, the name of that bomb. And so they find Trinitite here at, at this site and they begin to study it. And what they find out is at the exact same time that the biblical account gives that Sodom was destroyed, a meteorite, I'm not making this up, a meteorite exploded over the city. This has happened before, a large airburst event and everything was vaporized at like 3,600 degrees, just destroyed. And the Dead Sea was mixed in with all the salt and all of that, and everything was just vaporized in one moment, just as it's talked about in the Bible. And we go, okay, maybe, just maybe, the Bible's legit. And I wish I could geek out with you guys on all that stuff. There's so many other discoveries, and every time they discover something new, they go, Oh, okay, we were hoping that was going to disprove it. It's actually, turns out that's right too. Oh, yep, turns out that's right too. Yep, turns out that's, that's right true. All throughout the Old Testament, you have prophecies. God's giving us an address so we would know when the Savior has come. And there's been 400 years of silence in the history of Israel between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then this guy, John the Baptist, shows up. And people go, finally, God's speaking to us again. And they're all excited. John 1, 19 it says, now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confess freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet. So Isaiah's in the Old Testament. He says, I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness, making way straight the paths of the Lord. He says, okay, I am a fulfillment of prophecy. 
And these religious leaders, they were looking for the Messiah because they knew God's word was powerful. And they knew that when they opened God's word, like, man, stuff happens. And they knew that God had rained down fire in Sodom. And they knew that God had done things to reveal himself to the people. Some of you weren't paying attention. That God would, dis he would display himself as a pillar of fire by day to the Israelites as a guide that God was guiding them to a place. And then at night, it was a pillar of or a pillar of fire during the night, and a pillar of smoke during the day. And what these religious leaders knew, they knew that there was something about God's word that was unique, that was powerful, that when they opened it up, they were looking for more than just a couple of good advice points. But the power of God's word is when you open it and you really study it, and you learn from it. You keep it closed, nothing happens. But they had been studying, so they're going, John, we know we know that there's something going on. See, there's this guy named Daniel, and Daniel gave this prophecy. Hey, when the decree is given to rebuild Jerusalem, God's going to start a timer. And from the time that that time's up, it's going to be these, these chunks of years, these, these weeks of seven, sevens of years. So from that moment until this moment, then the Savior's going to enter into Jerusalem. And so people are like, okay, we know it's coming. This is why a wise men, by the way, from the east were looking for a sign. That's where Daniel was exiled to. And Daniel's writing this prophecy that God had given to Daniel saying, hey, the Savior's coming. And by the way, he's coming soon. You can, you can start a clock and he's gonna be showing up around this time. And so people were looking and that's why they showed up with gifts going, hey, where's this new king? On that first Christmas. God has given us a map to understand that his word is true. There are prophecies given in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem preceded by a messenger. That's what John is quoting. That the Messiah is to enter Jerusalem on a donkey, be betrayed by a friend, sold for 30 pieces of silver. All of this is from the Old Testament. That the money is to be thrown at a potter. Messiah is to be born of a virgin, hated without cause, silent before his accusers, executed by crucifixion, having his hands and feet pierced. This was prophesied before crucifixion even existed. That the Messiah was to be given vinegar to quench his thirst, executed without having a bone broken, buried with the rich when he died, that he was to be raised from the dead, that he was to be executed by crucifixion as a thief, all of this fulfilled in the person of Jesus. There's approximately 324 Old Testament prophecies pointing to Jesus. A mathematician concluded the chance of a single man fulfilling just 48 of these prophecies would be one in the 10 followed by 150 zeros, 157 zeros. Which just for context, there's 10 to the 80 atoms in the universe. So 10 to the 157th, it's not double that because it's exponential. It's, it's like 10 to the 84 bananas. Like it's just a number that doesn't even, it, it's so impossible that he would just randomly fulfill these prophecies, yet he fulfills all of them. Why? Because God wants us to know, hey, I didn't just deliver you a message. I'm giving you a promise. See, the best way for me to communicate with the people in our little box, it's not just to send them a message. What if, what if I, in great humility, could somehow empty myself of all of who I am and enter into their world? 
and communicate with them and talk with them and help them understand and show them things that would point them to the creator, to point them to why they were created, see things were messed up and they couldn't quite see it and they couldn't see clearly. The Bible says that people were blinded. And so what if, what if I could go in there and I could somehow communicate on their level? Wouldn't that be the best way to reveal myself? Because God can't just like stick his hand in here. God is infinite, eternal, without any physical limitations. He can't just put a hand in there. He'd be making up that hand thing. And he exists beyond all of creation. He can't just fit inside. He could empty himself, though. Take on flesh. Meet us in the mess of our world in the greatest act of humility. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus is God in the flesh. John says the word became flesh, dwelt among us. Jesus is the ultimate message. It says in verse 29, back in John, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not the Lamb who covers up sin, no, the, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And then John, throughout John, he's going to record in John 2, Jesus is going to turn water into wine. And John doesn't call it a miracle. He calls it a sign. And throughout John, we're going to see these signs. And in John chapter 3, Jesus has a conversation with this man. And it's the most famous verse in all the Bible. He says, God so loved the world. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And then he says, God did not send him to condemn the world to save the world. That Jesus isn't coming into this world to bring judgment. He's coming in to bring salvation. He's coming in to bring rescue. There will be judgment later on, but in this moment, he's bringing rescue. Jesus is having a conversation with a woman by a well, a Samaritan woman. Jesus goes out of his way to have a conversation. She's running from her past and her identity, and she's chasing after all different things. Jesus calls it out, but he doesn't shame her. And then it says in verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. She says, I know the one from the Old Testament that's been promised that's going to show up here. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Jesus says, you've been looking for a savior. Here he is. You've been waiting for the Messiah. I'm right here. She goes, she tells the town, hey, come and see. Could it be this man who's told me everything I've ever done in my life? Could it be he's the Messiah? And the whole town comes out and pretty much the whole town is saved as they put their trust, their faith in Jesus. Jesus continues to do signs. He continues to do these miracles. And people are intrigued. People are showing up in crowds. And in fact, he feeds 5,000 and then they go, oh, we want that again. And so they follow Jesus around the Sea of Galilee to the other side. And they're like, can you do that trick again where you feed us the food? And Jesus says to them, hey, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you got no part in me. And they're like, what? That's a weird thing. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, that is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? A bunch of people start grumbling, and they go, oh, this, I don't know if we agree with this teaching, and they, they start to dissipate. It says in verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. See, Jesus offended some people because he made bold claims. To say that you're God, to say that you're the Messiah, to say that you're the Savior, you're probably going to divide a crowd. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, I love this phrase. Listen to this. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, Jesus, you have the truth. 
You have proven that. You are God in the flesh. You are the bringer of truth who came to testify to the truth. You have the truth. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. In Colossians, it says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. If you want to understand God's heart, you look at Jesus. If you want to understand what would God do in this situation, you look at Jesus. He's God in the flesh. Tonight, we're going to talk about the greatest act of love that the world has ever seen, delivered through this person, Jesus, who is the Word become flesh. I want to pray for our time today. I want to pray that God will prepare our hearts for what's going to happen. Would you join me? Jesus, for each one of us, we are grateful that you came to this earth in humility. You were born into a stable, into a barn in the messiest of the messy places. What a testament to your love for us. God, thank you that we can trust your word. God, thank you. I'm, I'm grateful for those who have tried to to disprove, try to find fault, and in the process they've learned, God, that, that your word is rock solid. God, that it's all connected, that it has a divine fingerprint all throughout it. God, we trust that this is God-breathed. This is a living thing that guides us. Every time I open it, it's different, not because it's changed, but because I'm changed and because it's changing me. Thanks that it's such a powerful powerful gift you've given us. I pray that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but that we would do what it says and we would experience the life you created us for. I pray for hearts for tonight. I pray that you would open us up to the reality that at the end of all of this, there's an invitation that we choose if we're gonna, we're gonna accept that invitation or not. I pray now that there would be students who would put their trust in you tonight. Holy Spirit, would you be softening hearts? Would you be preparing us for that? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.